0: I enjoy giving pop quizzes to my residents, and I thought I would start with one. Take a stab at it. Who has been in the longest-lived and the worst marriage in the history of the world? It's not me, by the way, but go ahead. Take a stab at it. That's right. My wife looked at my notes, I think. She said, God. That's right, isn't it? And yet... He didn't give up on us. Uh, We've given him a hell of a marriage. Pardon the expression, but it is true. And yet he is. So what is your mission if you're a husband? What is your need? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Don't tell me it's mission impossible. This is open time for you guys. Respect. Do you want to sing it, too, like Aretha Franklin? That's yeah. right, Brady. That's right. Well, anyone else wants to take a stab at it? I would have agreed with you, Brady. In fact, uh, might have been the poster child for that. How about love? No one would say that, you know, the Fab Four from Abbey Road sang that. All I need is love. In becoming a husband, you are not to decide what this role should entail. God has already given us in his word everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so we may or may not enter into marriage, but we cannot tinker with the roles and responsibilities God has given to us. So if you are a husband, then we want to understand what is my mission, what is my role. And if you are going to be a husband, then you're going to accept a role An assignment of serious and eternal weight. And so, one of the things that I want to lay off the bat, right off the bat, is that you're going to assume the Christ reflecting figure. But here's the downside, and that's why I started off saying, Is it a mission impossible? God gives responsibilities to a husband that are impossible save for his grace. I remember Pastor John reminding us of the vows. So I want to read the vows to some extent and focus on those things which will be important for us to remember. You remember the traditional vows, how they began. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together to marry this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God, signifying to us, here's the the purpose for marriage, the mystical union that exists between God and, or Christ and his church. But here's the warning. And therefore, it is not to be entered into lightly, unadvisedly, but reverently, discreetly, and soberly, and in the fear of God. I know that sounds archaic, but really that is important. And then the phrase, duly considering the reasons for which it was instituted. And so I'm going to just recap real quick why, if you're married, did you get married? Marriage exists first and foremost to help you and everyone else behold the mystery and the glory of Christ and His church. As a husband, we are to display His glory and enjoy Him by being the Christ-reflecting figure to your wife. If nothing else, I hope we don't forget that. Now, I just want to take one step into a rabbit trail simply because we are using the word glory almost as if we all know what that means. I remember an advertisement back in the place where I grew up in where it says, Dunlop is Dunlop. So also when we ask, what do you mean by glory? We sometimes draw a blank. So I just want to say what glory is according to the Bible's definition. It is the external beauty of the internal excellencies of God. In other words, it's God's character gone public. How do we glorify God? By making much of God so that the fame and the weightiness of God can be known by those around us so that they too can become worshippers. So we don't have the time to develop it, but if you want to know it in one phrase, to glorify God means to make much of God. One of the things as we begin this journey is to remember that God never asks us to do anything for which he does not give us the willingness as well as the ability to do that. And when he asks us to do something, Paul reminds us it is God who is producing in you both the willingness and the ability to do those things which please him. And one of the things that pleases God is for a husband to reflect the character of Christ's relationship to his church. So we can be sure that it is not a mission impossible, but rather a mission possible for the grace of God will enable us to do what he has called us to do. So here's the million dollar question. What is the role of the husband in marriage? You have it in your handout, and this is very easy to remember even for me. God has called us husbands to be a learner, a lover, and a leader. And we're going to unpack it from these two verses, or sections actually, Ephesians chapter 5, probably beginning at verse 18, all the way down through the end of the chapter, and then First Peter chapter 3. So, but before we do that, we have to ask the question, how is it possible that a mission impossible becomes a mission possible. You'll have to look a little bit about the section on marriage because that holds the key. If you look at verses 18 through 21 in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. It is interesting and instructive that Paul begins his instruction about marriage, perhaps the most extended treatise on marriage, and unpacking it, but precedes that section with the secret with which this thing can be even talked about or even approached. So being filled with the Spirit means basically three things. You're joyful, you're thankful, you're submissive. The person who's filled with the Spirit is also filled with Christ and His Word. But if you're not a child of God, you're not even able to understand these things because only that person who's filled with the Spirit can understand the mind That wrote these things. So that's one thing. But if you are a child of God, you already have the Spirit. And one way in which you can know is that you're filled with Christ and His Word, and we will speak words which are kind and compassionate. Even when life hurts, we are going to be praising and thanking God and pointing others to Him, and we will submit to one another for Christ's sake. It's important that we lay this groundwork for The fact that it highlights our desperate need for grace and our dependence on God. I wanted to emphasize that simply because without recognizing our dependence on God, we might be the typical American who says, if it is difficult, give me a day. If it's impossible, just give me a week. We can't do it, men. It's impossible to be Christ-like to my wife without having Christ in my heart. Your marriage to Christ is going to be the foundation for your marriage to anyone else. So with that, let's begin to look at, as a husband, how should you relate to your wife? So the first, we relate to our wives by being a learner. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, husbands dwell with your wives in an understanding way, showing Honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, the important thing here is Peter is not calling us to a fireside chat and saying, Guys, I just wanted to give you a couple of suggestions, just understand your wife better, okay, so that you can be nice to them and things will be okay. No, learning here is a command, it's not an encouragement. And it's a choice for us whether we are going to obey or disobey. In other words, it's an act of the will. Now, what do you think from a worldly perspective? You've got jokes abound as to how a woman cannot be understood. They are too complicated, too emotional, and several other reasons. But remember what we talked about. If God commands it, we have the ability, with his help, to pull it off. And here's the good news. You don't have to understand every woman, just your wife. Praise the Lord for that. But it's also a command that requires time. You can't get to know somebody if most of the time we are spending time doing our own stuff. Or on the one hand doing one stuff and your wife is talking to you and you can't recollect what she said because your attention is carried away. What are the things that take our time away? Big thing in America, is sports. TV's, hobbies, business, climbing the corporate ladder. It also requires study, right? Let's rephrase it using the opposite. Just listen to this and how ridiculous it sounds. We may grasp the content of this verse by looking at the opposite. Dwell with your wives according to ignorance. Just walk in blindness. Don't look beyond your own desires. Let your vision be entirely introspective and microscopic. Never exercise your eyes in clear and comprehensive outlook. Dwell in ignorance. I wonder how many wives will say, that describes my husband. No, says the apostle dwell with them according to knowledge. How? Ask. Keep your eyes open. Time and study. But it's also a command that says, look at the end of the verse which says, dwell with them as the weaker vessel now before i get shouted out but for discrimination i'm going to say what it does not mean weakness here does not mean that they are positionally weak in the body of christ you remember what galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says there is neither jew nor greek nor slave nor free man there is neither male nor female for you are all one in christ jesus That's not to blur the gender distinctions as much as to say Christ died for both man and woman, and therefore, she's also a fellow heir. We'll see that later. But basically, it doesn't mean positionally. It doesn't mean intellectually. We all know that, and I hope that you believe it. It's also not entirely correct to say weaker in endurance in the sense that after I watched my wife give birth to her two children, I said, I'm glad I'm only the observer. So it doesn't mean that she's weaker, but what it does mean is there is some truth, and definitely so, that Paul, Peter is saying, yes, she is weaker than you physically in many ways, and so don't use your strength to intimidate her. One other way to say this is that you want to be the protector, the provider, and to continue the alliteration, the priest. We don't have the time to develop that, but basically what it says that you want to watch out for your wife to protect her, but she's also in the weaker position. Now, this is a little subtle in the sense that she's asked to submit to you along with submission to Christ. Now, a lot lot of ink has been spilt about this, but here's what my encouragement would be to women. Christ submitted himself to the Father because he loved his Father. Did that diminish him in any way? No. So a joyful submission is God's command, but at the same time here for the man, it is to understand what it would be for the wife to be in the vulnerable position that you would want to rephrase it, appreciate the difficult and perhaps scary position wives assume in order to follow their human husbands. So there's the weaker physically, there's the weaker vulnerable position, but it's also to recognize that we are different, the way we think, how many married couples have realized that on the first day of their marriage, they realized I married a stranger. I was talking to someone whose uh, son had married another, of course, a woman, and they had known each other for so long, but yet it was. So women think differently, but that's not to say that, you know, it's not like, here was I when I got married, the two shall become one. And guess who was the one I was thinking of? Or like Henry Higgins singing, I'm dating myself and my fair lady. Why can't a woman be like me? I want to sing that. It's a wonderful song if you want to check it out. But the point of that is live with your wives in an understanding way means this. Appreciate her specialness and differentness. She'll think, feel, and respond differently to situations as a whole compared to you. No husband and wife are perfect, but by God's sovereign purposes and design, they can be a perfect fit for one another. So understanding, physically they are weaker, vulnerability and differently. But here's another, one, another command which Peter sneaked in. Did you catch that? Live with your wives in an understanding way. What's the next phrase? Next two words. Showing honor. Now that's a word which is kind of out of fashion, I suppose, because we all want to be kings, not just at Burger King, but look at the vow that you made, and I don't know whether you wrote your own vows, but it's what we were given. Will you love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all other, keep thee only unto her, so long as he both shall live. If you said, I do, you're recruited for that. So what does honoring mean? First of all, it means more than respect. And it's possible that we could be detached and give somebody formal respect without honoring that person at all. We honor our wives because she has the same inheritance as us. Think of this. A wife puts her faith in Jesus Christ just like the husband does. She had to pay this, Jesus had to say, pay the same price to save her as he did save the husband. God's word directs her just as the word of God directs the man and is a lamp unto his feet. The Holy Spirit dwells inside her just like he does inside the husband. And someday she will experience that mansion that God has prepared for her. So honoring means to first of all recognize that. But there is also, as an Many places in the Word of God, there is the indicative, there's the imperative, there's also a warning there. Did you catch that? If we don't do that, men, it says that your relationship with God will be hindered. Look at that. Live with your wives in an understanding way and grant her honor so that your prayers may not be hindered. Don't say, well... At least I have my relationship with God. The word, the phrase, your prayers not be hindered is actually a short form for Peter saying your relationship with God is dependent on your relationship with your wife. Only a fool would want to hinder that relationship, yet how many men ignore that caution? What he's saying is really this, and it's scary, isn't it? If you will not show your wife honor, neither will I show you honor, if you will not live with her in an understanding way, neither will I live with you in an understanding way. A key to a strong spiritual life is a godly relationship with your wife. Let me ask you this. Now, I don't want anybody to answer this, but this rhetorical question, but you know what? Questions convict the conscience. Statements harden the heart. So here are three questions. Has this concept of understanding of learning your wife and honoring your wife being a part of the way that you and I have viewed our roles as a husband. If I were to be asked and you were to be asked, what are the things about your wife that you've learned since you got married? Don't tell me I've learned she's a stranger and she likes to squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom up and so on and so forth. What I'm talking about is her likes, her dislikes. And one way in which you can ask that is, not by saying, why did you get upset with me about that? Rather, you can phrase it, what were you feeling when I told you this? Or how did it make you feel when I forgot your birthday? No, I hope you don't. But we don't have the time to develop the practical side. In one sense, this is practical because doctrine is always practical. But the actual outworking of these will come at a later date. But if you would like to look up, there are 50 questions that you can ask your wife by Wayne Mack. She'll help you. So, as we close this section, again, think about the last one. Do you have to ask God's forgiveness for living in ignorance of your wife and not honoring her or asking her forgiveness? The husband is to be a learner. But the husband is also to be a lover. Let's read that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we begin at verse 25. The most extended treatise on marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This was what was translated into your vows when she took, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy ordinance. Here's a challenge that I had. What is the synonym for cherish? I haven't been able to find that. It's such a rich word. We talked about covenant. You remember what Pastor John said? A covenant is a permanent, legal, binding agreement between two parties whereby each party gives themselves completely to the other. Guess what? That covenant sustains this love, not the love, the covenant. I went into marriage thinking that love will hold our marriage together, but marriage taught me how to love. Those were what I learned from other people for lack of Knowing who said it, I'm just going to say it was said in a particular place, which I don't remember. But human marriage eventually helps us to reflect, or ultimately or fundamentally helps us to reflect and enjoy the union of Christ and his bride. Now, if Paul had stopped with husbands love your wives, that's probably easier, but he qualified it. And it's the next phrase that defines and clarifies our responsibility. And that is that phrase, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, three important observations again, we've said, you know, one is this is a command. Husbands love your wives, it's not okay if it's convenient, if she is lovable. And no. Remember? If you love me, keep my commandments. So this is a command. If you love Jesus, then we want to make sure if loving you is right, then I don't want to be wrong, baby. That's right. Secondly, look at the comparisons he makes. It's on two levels, right? Just as Christ loved the church, that's foundational. That starts here, but then he goes on to a second comparison, just as he loves his own body as himself. Let's unpack this a little bit more because if nothing else you want to focus on this, you want to be a learner and you don't You know, in 1968, you remember that, sorry, sometimes these songs come into my mind and I just can't get them out, so listen to me, look at this, 1968, the door sang a song, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Now how in the world can you love somebody whom you don't even know the name of? It's like falling into a ditch, no. you got to learn somebody before you can love somebody, so once you learn your wife, here is... The next step, you want to be a lover. So, just as Christ loved the church, how did he love his ch- church? He gave himself up for her. The death, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ offers a timeless example of the love that a husband has to display towards his wife. When people see the marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman, is the church, the love for Jesus and his church shown in technicolor. No one forced Jesus, by the way, to become. He says, I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10, verse 11. I lay down my life for the sheep. But he also did it joyfully. He didn't do it grudgingly. You remember that verse in Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. A husband is called to give up himself for his bride the way Jesus did for his bride. It's hard It takes time. You don't fall into it like you fall into a ditch. you got to know your wife at the same time. you got to keep looking at the example of Christ. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Guess what? It starts at home, right? A husband will often be tempted and often fall into bitterness because he wants to love his wife, who sometimes is unlovable. Let's face it. We all are unlovable most of the time. Thank goodness God didn't say, well, I'll love you if you get a little better and clean up your act. But joyful self-sacrifice means that I love her and the sinful flesh hates nothing more than self-sacrifice. I should know. I was the poster child. There I was on that hot summer day in June 1990 and there's my dazzling bride to me as she's entering the church and I looked at my best man and said, isn't she beautiful? And isn't this wonderful Dan loves Dan, and Glory also loves Dan. What a deal. Well, after that, we lived happily, not ever after, even after. It is a testimony to God's grace that when two sinners say, I do, that God can still reflect the glory of Christ in that. Listen to this. uh, Sam Albury tells this. I love this. He says, the Bible begins with the marriage in Eden, Adam and Eve, and ends with the marriage in the New Jerusalem. Christ and his Bride, the Church. The first marriage is a movie trailer for the second. Human marriage is the trailer for the feature presentation, the relationship which Christ has with his Church. And therefore, earthly marriage is itself not ultimate, but it's meant to be the model of what is ultimate, but it is the propensity of fallen human beings to mistake the model for the reality. The purpose of human marriage is not to fulfill us, but to show us where true fulfillment is to be found. Human marriage is a reflection of what is enough, Jesus and his relationship with us. So when a husband is called to love his wife, he is called to joyfully sacrifice himself for the eternal welfare of his bride. How does he do that? By sanctifying her, which means that he is making sure that his wife draws closer and closer to Christ and prays for and does everything that is needed so that his wife will grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the fear and the character of God. The husband who loves this way seeks to help his bride glorify and enjoy her eternal husband, Jesus Christ. My need is not respect. My need is sanctification. Her need is not love. Her need is also sanctification. But there is a danger that sometimes we can go to the other extreme and say, I don't want to go on. I don't want, you know, the old B.G. song, I don't want no one else but you, baby. No. I would rather that my wife says, I love you, but I don't love you as much as I love Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd recognized this in his wife, Patricia. And so as he was leaving and Patricia was saying, Charlie, how am I going to live without you? He said, okay, you're going to pray this every night. Dear Jesus, you are dearer to me than Charlie ever could be. You're dearer to me than Charlie ever could be. Is that what you want your wife? Your wife cannot truly love you unless she loves the Lord the best. So as as Christ loved the church, but it's also as his own body, with my body, you remember the old Anglican prayer book? I'm sorry, I I, am from that denomination originally. So with my body, I thee worship. It's not like you worship the body, but you're saying that I'm going to care for you just as I care for my own body. When you're hungry, you feed it. When thirsty, we drink. When in danger, we guard our bodies. A husband is to love, love his wife by serving her, helping her, encouraging her, providing and guarding her the way he would to his own body. You nourish your own body. You cherish your own body. You take care of your own body. So how does the husband do it? He listens to his wife. He carefully provides for her. He thinks ahead of her all the while thinking... How can I best help her? How can she flourish? There is no competition here. You trust. And it also includes speaking the truth in love. There may be times where we might have to, you know, one of the three ingredients which helps is, can I receive criticism without being crushed? Can I give criticism without being crushed? Can I forgive without holding resentment? Listen to Kent Hughes, uh, great pastor. Here's what he says. The man who sanctifies his wife understands that this is his divinely ordained responsibility. Is my wife more like Christ since she married me? Or is she like Christ in spite of me? It's kind of like I tell my patients, you got better in spite of me. Has she shrunk from his likeness because of me? Do I sanctify her or hold her back? Can others who rub shoulders with us say, after she got married, she has become more loving, more caring, more patient? Or are they going to say, like what someone said, you know, some people bring delight wherever they go, others whenever they go. Here's the third thing which didn't strike me until I started reading it. Paul is repeating this command three times to the husband, whereas he only tells once to the wife. Did you see that? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. There are three times. Why? Is it because the wife has a great need for her husband's love? Absolutely not. It's because the husband has a great lack of giving love and needs to be reminded. Let's face it, guys. We don't get it. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to repeat it three times. So, just as Christ loved the church, has his own body, what are some wrong views of love? I don't have the time to develop it, but what is the most common feeling? Love is a feeling. Love is sex. Love is weak. Love is infatuation. Now, we could discuss a lot about this, but suffice it to say that's not love. Instead of looking at the negative, let's look at the positive. What is the definition of Love. I'm, inde- I'm indebted to Pastor John. Here is there in your handout. A husband's love for his wife means joyful self-sacrifice. How? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what is the aim, the goal? is The eternal good of his bride for the glory of his God. That is that his wife may make much of God, not make much of him. When the minister asked you, will you have this woman... He never asked you, what do you feel about this woman? Feelings were irrelevant because it's a commitment of the will motivated by a desire to please God. Joyful self-sacrifice. Remember Second Corinthians 5, nine. what is my only and ultimate goal in life? Second Corinthians 5.9, therefore we make it our aim, whether we live or die, to please God, pleasing God. There's only two choices on the shelf. Either I please God or I please myself. This would be a good time to remember John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What are you willing to give? What am I willing to give to sacrifice, to demonstrate your love for your wife? I encourage you to pick up Wayne Mac, 100 ways in which there are 104 ways he lists for a husband to show his wife how he loves her. The husband, the wife's list is Shorter. The wife listening to that is going to say, tell me more. Husband says, are you kidding me? (laughs) But look at the kind of love that God displayed. He displayed it on the cross while we were still sinners. We don't depend on the performance or the suitability or the eligibility of the recipient. Godly love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. I have a hard time putting my name there and reading it, saying, Dan is patient and kind. Dan does not keep a record of wrongdoings. The key thing is emotions will come and go. The challenge is always this, isn't it? To bring our emotions under the jurisdiction of our will. Solomon says, many waters cannot quench this love. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is that mind? We think and act like Christ. Right thinking leads to right action. He was willing to be a servant and willing to die. Many of us would rather die, but we don't want to live for our wives. I want to just quickly talk about what are the degrees of love. We don't have the time to develop this, but I'll tell you first, it takes, love takes the lo- initiative. Godly love always takes the initiative. How about showing our wives love, affection, and kindness without any attempt to get her involved sexually? I hear some husband say, well, I tried to show affection, but she never listens. That's, is that because the only time you're kind and affectionate and you want to just hold her and want to keep her close to you is because you're thinking about sexual intimacy? It is to be a permanent attitude. We don't want to say it's a renewable contract for six months. I'm going to be loving to her, and then I'll wait for her to be loving to me. Remember what the covenant is? It's a permanent, binding, legal commitment between two people, whereby they give completely all of themselves to each other. So it takes the initiative. It's a permanent attitude. It does not depend upon the performance or the suitability or the eligibility we love because he first loved us. Because that's the way God showed love to us while we were still sinners. Here's the point. God wants a husband to love his wife, not to get her to change so that life will be easier for him, our life is the way that I want it to be, but because that's how Christ loves the church. While we were still sinners and still continuing to be sinners, He never gives up on us. But some of us can do that and get all bitter. Oh, I need to love her. It's kind of like the guy who said, okay, I'm going to call you at 4 o'clock, honey. So at 4 o'clock he calls and says, okay, honey, I've called you. Keeps the phone down. What kind of love is that? It's not legalism. You do it because you are filled. It's the love of Christ which constrains us. It's about giving and not getting. So, the godly husband is to be a learner who understands his wife and honors his wife. The godly husband is to be a lover, but there is, wait, we are not finished yet. The godly husband is to be a leader. We look at Matthew 20, 25 to 28, But I just wanted to place the context that if you remember that particular phrase, and you can turn to that as we are talking, the context is the disciples are asking who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we look at that shortly. But what is the biblical foundation for a husband's leadership? Because that's how it began. It's simple. We need to go back to the beginning to find out where we start. The order of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 establishes the leadership. God created Adam first, then Eve. If you thought that that was just historical, then Paul doesn't think so because he takes that and reminds us in First Timothy 2.13, by virtue of the order in creation, God established Adam as the leader. Now, men, before you get too, you know, prideful, the reason why God did it was there was a deficiency in Adam. That's why he needed Eve. And the word helper is actually the same word that is used for God, often. Eve, you remember that line, I'm sorry, you know, some, I think sometimes it does illustrate, you remember that classic line from Jerry Maguire, comes into the room, Tom, and then he says, you complete me, and everybody goes, yes, and I'm saying, no. The husband can't be telling the wife, you complete me, only God can, only Jesus can complete us. Even if in that instance, Eve was a helper, But God also declared the husband to be the leader, Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So God is the creator, he helps, he gets to determine the various roles and functions. But what is the biblical view of husband's leadership? So we've established what the Bible talks about, why the husband, but here is the biblical view. Look at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25 on, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's hard, because we all want to be served and not served. So the godly leadership is not, let's look at the negative. The Gentile view is how many people do I have under me? The focus is on position and authority and demanding submission. And sometimes tradition and culture can be hard. I know it was for me when I came from an Indian culture, but you know what? The word of God reigns supreme. It is not tradition or culture that we look. The Bible is God's word authoritatively, and that is where we take our epistemology, or that is our authority for faith and practice. And he has given us everything in his word that pertains to life and godliness. But what godly leadership is this? Jesus said that he came to serve and to give a ransom for many. The focus is on serving those who are under us. Here here are a few things that we can think about. The dictator is proud, the husband is humble, who serves as a godly leader. No accountability, For the dictator, he says, who are you to tell me what I should do? But the godly husband says, I want to be accountable to you because you are my best friend and the kisses of an enemy are deceitful but the wounds of a friend are the ones that I want because you look out for me. We expect others to serve him when we live as a dictator but we serve others. Sinful communication, lying and anger and cover-up because our identity sometimes is caught up in many different things besides Christ, but biblical communication, and that's a whole different topic which I'm sure we'll address. The dictator says, says, you know, we're all listening to this one radio station, WIFM. You heard of it? I bet you know about it. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? But the husband who's a godly leader says, what's best for her? That will make her more like Christ. That will make me serve her like Christ. Wrong motive if you're a dictator. Pleasing self. Right motive, pleasing God. Remember, two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God, pleasing myself. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether we live or die, to live pleasing to God. You want others to change if you're a dictator. But if I'm a servant, I'll say, what am I to change about me, Lord? Search me, O God, and know my heart that I can serve others better. The dictator does not care. He doesn't provide spiritual leadership. Men, you ought to be leading. You Remember, the man is the provider, the protector, and the priest. You ought to be leading your wife to read the Bible together, pray together, fellowship, stewardship. He should be the one motivating her. The greatest example, obviously, of a leader is who? Jesus. If you lead the way that Jesus led, then... Your husband, your wife, will not have a trouble following you. Now, there are some people who are married who, if they are married to Jesus, will still find something wrong with him. But in general, most women will follow godly leadership if you love her, as you love, as Christ loves the church. Leading should include prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and stewardship. But God has also ordained that you take counsel from her, listen to her. But if there is a tiebreaker issue, there are times when. My wife and I, we both have different opinions about how we should do this thing. God has given the tiebreaker vote to the husband. But in those instances, it should be rare. And even for love's sake, you know, forgive me, but it might be a little crass, but sometimes we get upset about small things which don't really matter in eternity. Somebody said this, and it kind of rings in my mind. If it's petty, don't sweat it. If it's sweaty, don't pet it. So just leave it. Sometimes we get, you know, the word peccadillo. So sometimes a wife may have some things to do, which she wants to do it her own way. Does it matter in eternity, man? But when it comes to a tiebreaker, I hope it's not every day you're saying, well, you know, God has given me the authority to be the tiebreaker, so you better do what I say. No, we provide, we do it joyfully and say, honey, if that's the way you like it, I'm going to do it. You recognize the strengths that she has and say, you know, you're really good at doing this. How about you take charge here? I'm really good at doing this. I'm going to provide for it. So he speaks the truth in love to his wife. He joyfully shares the household work alongside his wife. Most of all, he models his wife so that his wife imitates him joyfully. What kind of a leader am I or you? But more importantly, it's not just hearing the word, isn't it? It's doing the word. What steps do I need to take to be the leader Are you a learner who understands and honors his wife? Am I a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church, as his own body? The husband is also to lead his wife as a servant. The Christian man's wife should be becoming more and more like Christ the longer the two are married. Guess what? That's also the calling of the wife, to serve her husband, that he might grow more and more into Christ-likeness. In short, be Christ-like to one another so that those around us who observe us, who know us inside out, who rub shoulders with us on a regular basis can tell whether our marriages have been platforms where we have been made more and more Christ-like, that it becomes a show and tell for the glorious mystery and the glory and splendor of the love that Christ has for his church, which is the greatest picture That God has put in his word to reflect his love for us so mission impossible sure if we try to do it by our own strengths and say let me roll up our sleeves give me a list of things to do but if you'll take your wife by her hand go to the Lord and say Lord I'm weak but you're strong I don't know I'm a child we began with the child right Father, I know not what I do. It is a mystery, but will you teach me? I want to serve you. I want to obey you. I want to please you so that I can sanctify my wife, so that I can love her and nourish her and cherish her. Then he promises to help us because he has said in his word that he who began a good work will complete it. Well, I think... Somebody must have prayed very hard because I actually finished with a little bit of time left for questions and answers. So I'm going to stop right here. You have some discussion questions there. You can take that or you can ask the questions. I know that uh, if I cannot answer, there are other folks like Pastor John I see sitting back there and Cole and Dave Kendrick who are my fellow teachers and sinners and saints. So let's stop right there and uh, then we will go ahead and open up the floor for questions, comments. Well, either I was too clear or I was unclear, but I hope that one thing is clear, that thankfully the Lord is gracious that He deals with us patiently. But I'm going to have a word of prayer and close up, and you can work on your questions. But I hope that this begins a new chapter in your relationship with your wife, whereby you're looking to the Word of God and the grace of God, going to the throne of grace and the Word of grace to help us live out our mission. I'll go ahead and pray and close for us. Again, our Father and our God, as we read your word and what it means to be a godly husband, the first thing which strikes us is, uh, I can't. And we are with Jehoshaphat saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We thank you that you have not left us clueless as orphans. You have not left us without the Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit which res- who resides in us. And we ask for his grace and for his strength so that out of your fullness, those of us who have received grace upon grace may extend grace so that we may show the beauty, the majesty and the wonder and the glory of Christ and his love for his church as we look forward to the day that we will stand with him in that glorious marriage of the Lamb, washed and cleaned and sanctified so that we may at that time realize that our faith has become sight. We glorify you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.